Texas 512 is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast represent the views of the host and not the University of Texas at Austin. This is Sam Torres, Texas Longhorn fan, native Austinite, admissions counselor, and your host with the most. And this is Texas 512. Good morning or afternoon or evening whenever you're listening. Welcome to another episode of Texas 512. I'm your host with the most, Sam Torres. And today we've got another special guest uh, with us. But um, this uh, individual is the director of the uh, Center for Mexican-American Studies here at UT Austin. And so as a Mexican-American, I am super excited to get to learn a little bit more about what it is here at UT Austin. You know, UT is such a big school. There's a lot of stuff that I don't know about, but that's part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast so that I can go through this journey with y'all and learn a little bit more about what UT has to offer. And so um, I'm going to stop rambling. I'm going to go ahead and allow my uh, guests to introduce themselves. So Dr. Gonzalez, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are? Uh, sure thing, Sam. First, it's great to be here on the 512 podcast and thanks for inviting me. And a little bit about myself. I'm uh, John Moran Gonzalez. Uh, I'm the director for the Center for Mexican American Studies. I'm a professor in the English department. I teach courses in uh, Latinx literature and culture. We'll definitely talk a little little bit more about that um, a little bit later. But, you know, of course, as usual here, we like to uh, warm up our guests and ask a couple of fun questions just to get them, you know, warmed up and a little bit more comfortable. So we're going to go into that here after this quick break. Um, And you did mention that you're from the Rio Grande Valley. So that's actually what my first question was going to be. So don't go away, y'all. We'll be right back and you'll find out why um, that is relevant to the question that I will be asking. Texas 512 is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast represent the views of the host and not the University of Texas at Austin. All right, we have returned. And so as I mentioned before, we went into our little break, um, you know, and as Dr. Gonzalez mentioned, actually, he is a native of the Rio Grande Valley, uh, Puro 956, right? Um, And so I feel I felt that you would appreciate this question because I have a friend that has a lot of family out in the RGV as well. Um, And and every time, you know, we're, we're talking about you know, food. So in this podcast, we like to talk about food, right? Uh, Me and my friend like to discuss food. And one of our favorite things to talk about is like Mexican snacks. Now, what I mean by Mexican snacks, you know, I'm not just talking about, you know, the stuff that you you buy at the store um, that like comes from Mexico. I'm referring to, you know, hot Cheetos with nacho cheese, to tostilocos, mangonadas, picadillis, uh, elote in a cup or on a cob with all the all the fixings. Right. And so Dr. Gonzalez, um, I would I would assume that since you are a native of the RGV, you are familiar with these snacks. Which one of these is your? Well, I, I didn't name all of them, but what's your favorite? Well, I was I've I'm also always been partial to anything with tamarindo. I mean that uh, that flavor is just really unique, and uh, you know I I just love the the kind of flavor that is you can't find anywhere else. I I just find it mm-hmm. so specifically about you know. South Texas, growing up on the border in northern Mexico, 
that uh, you know that that's my Hikama is awesome as another one, but that that's a that's not quite in the same category. You know, eating eating the the root. You know, it's a big old root, and you slice it in thin slices. You put on the the limon and the and, you know and the chile, and man, that's a great snack, especially when it's、uh, hot outside. I love that stuff. I, you know, as a kid, my mom would always give it to me. Didn't know what it was, and I'm glad she、exactly. never told me because I think that if I would have found out, as a kid at least, if I would have found out that it was a root, I'd probably been like, I don't want it, because <laughs> I'm such a picky eater. <laughs> But I'm glad that she had never told me. I always just assumed it was like some kind of fruit until like later on I realized that fruits. Have like seeds. I think that's the rule, right?、Um, but but hikama is so good. And if y'all, if y'all, hikama is awesome. It, yeah. And、uh, you know, and it and it tastes a lot better. You know, it's like you know carrots、yeah. and other root beets, right? You know, but you know, it tastes a no, lot. No, a hundred percent. If y'all have never tried it, I know it sounds weird because we, it's a root, right? Um, but it it is just it's so good it's so refreshing you have to put like chile limon and everything on it because、um, that that makes it like the whole experience、um, so it's it's really really good y'all y'all have to try it if you have never done that so I'm really glad you brought that up because probably one of my favorite Mexican snacks growing up for sure and it's definitely a lot healthier than tostilocos and nachitos with nacho cheese now、um, <laughs> kind of you know as somebody uh, uh, me myself as somebody has spent their entire lives in Texas I gotta say I'm I'm a little bit jealous of you because、um, I know you didn't mention this in the beginning but、um, whenever you went、uh, to to school you went to opposite sides of the U.S. so you got to experience both coasts right so you went to Princeton for your undergrad and you Went to、uh, which is in New Jersey for those that don't know, and then you went to Stanford for your master's and your PhD.、Um, and you're probably wondering where did you get this from? Your bio online, of course. But、um, now, obviously, you ultimately came back to the best state ever,、um, Texas. At the end of the day, but you know, being away from Texas, which of these two coasts did you have the most fun at? Which one did you enjoy the most, the East Coast or the West Coast? I may be trying to start a war here, but you know. I just gotta know. Let's <laughs> go, old East Coast West Coast、yeah. feud, huh? <laughs> yeah,、uh, you know,、uh, you know, both both experiences were invaluable, but in really、mm-hmm. different ways. I, I think I enjoyed them in in quite different ways.、Uh, you know, going to Princeton was、uh, I, like landing on the moon. It was just like enormous culture、mm-hmm. shock, <laughs> and、uh, because everything was so different. And there were very, very few Mexicanos、right. of any type, you know,、uh, Texas or California or, or, or Mexico for that matter, and uh, that uh, uh, it was just、uh, like being transplanted on Mars. And、uh, so it took it took some time to get、mm-hmm. used to, you know. And I, I felt homesick, you know. I. Uh, you know, was making those expensive long distance calls <laughs> back, back then, then、yeah. back in the day, and uh, so uh, it, yeah, this was you know, and this was like before email、mm-hmm. and and texting and and all of that too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it it was hard,、uh, but you know, I made fantastic friends. I got、uh, a a great education, and it opened up. Kind of、mm-hmm. the world, you know. In in、uh, certain ways, I really enjoyed、uh, getting to uh, know uh, New、mm-hmm. York City, you know, which is one of the great、yeah. cities of the world,、uh, and、uh, just really experiencing a 
completely different way of mm-hmm. life and being. And so, uh, you know, the West Coast, you know, out at Stanford mm-hmm. was was in in cultural terms a yeah. lot easier. I mean, especially after, you know, the East Coast, the West Coast was like, oh, man, this is really familiar, mm-hmm. even though it's not. I mean, it, it's really different from Texas and the Valley and all that. But I mean, in comparison, it was much more familiar. You know, there are, of course, a lot more uh, uh, Mexicanos in California. And uh, but then, you know, got exposed to the very rich uh, 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 variety of uh, Asian American Mm -hmm. cultures there in California, in the Bay Area. And uh just uh, a completely different kind of natural environment as well with the mountains and the the the, the bay and all of that uh, it was uh it it felt a lot yeah, more familiar definitely. and i felt much more at home in in the bay area than i had in, in princeton uh, I, I loved it. It was just a fantastic uh, place to, to be. Of course, there were the earthquakes. <laughs> that was kind of scary because I was in the 1991 uh, Loma Prieta or mm-hmm. 89, uh, 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, the big 7.1 earthquake that hit the Bay Area, did a lot of damage and, of course, uh, scared the heck out of me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, California had its dangers too, but I really, really enjoyed, uh, being out there. But like you said, you know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, we, uh, you know, I guess Tejanos particularly have this, uh, homing instinct Mm -hmm. and, uh, to return to, uh, uh, return Mm -hmm. to texas right and so i like i said at the beginning i've been here now almost 20 years uh quite happily here at ut austin see so at the end of the day texas still wins because (laughs) uh east coast versus west coast it's texas it's always texas y'all um now uh my my last question for you before we move on to a little bit more about the work that you do here at ut austin if you know i've always thought that there's not enough hours in the day And the fact that we have to spend, we have to, and we don't usually do, but we have to at least spend eight or nine of those asleep. Um, Do I do that? No. And sometimes I only get like six or five hours. Uh, But let's say hypothetically that we were all given an extra hour in the day. So now every day is now 25 hours long. What would you do with that extra hour? Would you dedicate it to work? to your hobbies, to your personal life, or maybe give yourself an extra hour of sleep. And it doesn't have to be anything that I've just named right now. What would you, Dr. Gonzalez, do with that extra hour? Well, believe me, the sleep option is always tempting (laughs) because I I still have my my kids are still in... uh you know, kind of middle school, grade school, and they get up early. <laughs> they get up way too early, which means I have to as well, and as well as my wife. And so, uh, you know, the sleep option sounds really, really good. Uh, but, you know, if I had my eight hours of sleep a night and kind of didn't need the extra hour for that, uh, I would I would use it for, um, you know, for for just, uh, you know, kind of uh, in, enjoying uh, a little bit more family time. I mean, it's like the days are so busy. Uh, everybody is doing their own thing. You've got homework. You've got work. You've got this or that. And, uh, you know, sometimes there just isn't enough time to enjoy each other. So uh, I I think I would 
put it uh, that way. Definitely. Yeah, that's a really great answer. And I think it makes me reflect back onto my my time in grad school. So I did I did most of or I did all of my grad school online. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it would be like work all day. And then afterwards, I'd have to, you know, work on some type of homework or, you know, uh, study or read or whatever. And, and I'm sure, you know, I'm <laughs> that, that reading sure. in grad school is, is crazy. Cause you, you have to read so, so much. Um, and then the writing of course is, it takes up a lot of time as well. And so I, I felt during my time in grad school, I almost felt like I didn't have enough time to myself. Right. Or I didn't have enough time to go see my family. Um, so I, I think that your answer really resonates with me a lot because, uh, you know, that extra hour would definitely go a long way with at least giving me the opportunity to just enjoy time, um, you know, not not have to worry about work or school um, and to maybe even go see my family. Because whenever I was in grad school, I lived um, closer to my family. Um, so I, I would have had the opportunity to do that. And a lot of times I had to turn down those family functions because I'm like, no, I got to I got to study for this test. Um, so, yes. But it, I think that's a common theme that's been popping up in the recent episodes is to just appreciate the time that you have and appreciate your family. So I, I really love that. Um, so thank you so much for, you know, being open minded to some of these questions, even though some of them were a little bit silly. We're going to take a quick break. And whenever we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the work that you do for the Center of uh, for Mexican-American Studies, as well as, you know, the, your academic interests and what you do here at UT Austin. So don't go away, y'all. We will be right back. are back. So um, as I mentioned in the beginning, I'm, you know, I myself is am a Mexican American. Um, you know, I uh, was born in the United States, but I am uh, a son of two immigrant parents um, that came, of course, from Mexico. Um, so I'm a little bit intrigued about this Center for Mexican American Studies here at UT Austin. Um, this is the first time, you know, that I've I've personally heard about it. And, and as I've mentioned before, UT Austin has so many different resources and so many different things. Sometimes it's hard for me to keep up with it. And of course, um, my job as an admissions counselor requires me to know uh, about all these different things, but also I'm just overall intrigued about this center. So can you tell me a little bit more about what this center is, what it does, or, or what the folks in this center do, and what is your role as director of the center? Well, that's a great question, Sam. And really, the Center for Mexican American Studies is uh, part of a longtime legacy of excellence in the study of Mexican descent people. And now these days has also expanded to include uh, other, other Latino uh, groups. But really it's, it's great that you asked me that question because we're celebrating uh, our 50th anniversary. Uh, you know, kind of this year, the pandemic of course, kind of threw a, a wrench in the plans, but uh, we're going to pick up uh, in person next year. Uh, with our 50th anniversary celebrations. And what we're celebrating is the uh, idea that uh, academic scholarship can be about and for uh, a, a particular group of people, right? And Mexican-Americans, of course, have always, always been here in, 
in Texas, right? <laughs> uh, long, long before it was part of the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, really, the study of Mexican-American people and problems uh, and issues uh, in terms of thinking to solve those problems rather than casting uh, Mexican descent people as the problem mm -hmm. Uh, really didn't start uh, until the 1950s or the 1970s in an institutional way. And so in the late 60s, you know, a group of community folks and faculty and students got together and said, well, we really, really need uh, uh, uh academic an academic uh institute that is not going to view mexican descent people as some kind of social problem to be solved right, right? you know not not inherently criminal not inherently you know uh poverty stricken, not inherently a drag on the economy uh etc etc and so uh they they uh, got together and uh push the university along with the African-American community for uh, ethnic studies in the form of African-American studies and, of course, Mexican-American studies. That's how CMUS was founded uh, in 1970 with uh, the legendary uh, Dr. Américo Paredes as its founding uh, director. Um, so, I, I mean, I'll have to mention that prior to then, you know, the University of Texas had been the the premier source of uh, scholarship that had cast Mexican-Americans as a social problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, unfortunately, but there was a very long history of that. And so in 1970, this was uh, kind of a revolutionary in the sense that here you had, you know, uh, not, not, not that all scholars of, of Mexican American studies are Mexican American, mm -hmm. but you know that you had folks a field of study that was dedicated to studying uh, and, and and thinking about Mexican American populations without kind of reducing them to this status of social problem, and so. Uh, in a in a multidisciplinary way. So ever since then, uh, that's exactly what the center has done, mm -hmm. and has uh, you know we've provided uh, programming for undergraduates uh, throughout this time, uh, really aimed at helping uh, them think through the place their place on campus mm -hmm. in many ways. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as uh, a home away from home. Mm -hmm. Right. That uh, a welcoming space where you don't have to explain to everybody who you are, where you come from or, or why you like tamarindo or uh, or anything like that. <laughs> so uh, so we offer a, a programming that is both social in nature. Right. Mm -hmm. Just kind of good old fashioned community building and 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 uh, kind of events but we also offer ac academically oriented lectures we offer kind of uh programming in terms of uh professional development mm -hmm. uh you know kind of exposing undergraduates to the kind of wide world of what one can do with a uh, ut austin degree absolutely right uh and it, it's it's a very wide range of things 
Uh, we work together with community organizations to put on programs like the uh, Barrio Writers uh, Summer Workshop, mm -hmm. or uh, we work with the uh, Community Foundation's Free Minds program in getting uh, non-traditional uh, students uh, from East Austin back into the kind of college uh, pipeline. Yeah. Uh, we... Uh, where the center is part of uh, Latino studies, mm -hmm. uh, which also is the Latino Research Institute, which focuses on public policy oriented research uh, regarding Latinos and the Department of Mexican American and Latino Latino Studies, which uh, has the curriculum uh, and faculty dedicated to Mexican American and Latinx studies. So, you know, you can get a you can get a uh, undergraduate degree or even a PhD mm -hmm. in Mexican American studies now at UT Austin. Awesome. No, that sounds fantastic. And, you know, happy anniversary to um, the Center for uh, Mexican American Studies. That's fantastic. 50 years of great work. That's a really, really long time. Um, and now I'm, I'm, you kind of mentioned it right now is that uh, the this center is a part of Latino and Latina studies at UT Austin. And so I, I kind of wanted to, to see what what you knew a little bit more about this department, uh, because I think this is a, a very uh, a unique major. Um, that, that students can pursue. Not not a whole lot of schools have something like this, at least to my knowledge. Um, you know, uh, can you tell us about what this department, particularly the Department of Mexican-American and Latino and Latina Studies um, and its academic programs? I know you've already mentioned, you know, the undergraduate and the Ph.D. programs, but I'm curious to hear a little bit more about it and, you know, what what the curriculum looks like and then ultimately what those students end up doing. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I I think one of the great things about uh, the uh, undergraduate uh, degree and graduate degree in uh, Mexican American and Latino Latina studies is that it's interdisciplinary. That is, you know, the the uh, curricular uh, course is really meant to uh, foster uh, critical thinking skills that are applicable across a wide range of uh, endeavors and professions. So in other words, it's not about simply just, you know, learning a skill set that will be particular and useful to one profession, right? But it, it are generally applicable across the board, you know, in whatever profession you wind up in. Because as we know, uh, uh, today's, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, Gen, Gen Z uh, folks are going to be finding themselves doing a lot of different things throughout their career, right? right? You mm -hmm. know, uh, the average time spent in a job is quite fairly short these days, but it means, you know, with the uh, Fairly quick turnover in in uh, uh, specific jobs means that you need to be prepared not for to do a particular job. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, you learn to do that on the job. But what you need is a set of skills that will translate between jobs. Right. Right. And help you uh, learn the specifics of a particular job. So, uh, you know, and these are these Critical skills are, uh, you know, writing and communication. Mm -hmm. uh, that's always going to be useful. Analytical thinking. 
and particularly analytical thinking in such a way that uh, it's relational, mm -hmm. right? That is, you can work across different types of data, you know, qualitative, quantitative, and come to a new, you know, a, a new synthesis, right? A new mm -hmm. way of approaching uh, uh, an issue or problem. And so these are the kind of skills that uh, uh, a degree like uh, Mexican-American and Latino-Latina studies kind of helps foster and are, I think, increasingly important in an era when, you know, you're, you're, you, you change jobs fairly often, right? You change contexts, mm -hmm. you know, you move from city to city, you're changing contexts and you need to know how to navigate changing uh, cultural contexts uh, as well. And so uh, these are the sorts of skills that I, that a degree in, in uh, uh, Mexican-American and Latino-Latina studies helps provide. That's fantastic. And it's always great for, for me to learn a little bit more about, you know, the, the types of degrees that we have here. Because like I said, there's there's a lot of these that I, I feel like aren't really offered at a lot of different universities. Um, so they're, they're very unique to UT Austin. And I, I do sincerely agree with what you said about, um, you know, the, the degree should really teach students, um, um, you know, skills that can essentially work in any type of job. Um, you know, uh, there, there's a big conversation we already, we always have with our students is that a lot of times that, you know, your degree or your major is not going to equal the job that you end up doing. Right. And, and so I, I think that that's very beautiful that it gives you the opportunity to do so many different things and it's not going to restrict you to just one thing, one thing in particular, right? Now, I did want to talk before we end things, I want to talk a little bit more about the work that you do um, and your your academic interests, right? So in addition to being the director of the Center for Mexican-American Studies, um, you also mentioned that you were a professor here at UT Austin. Um, you had mentioned in the beginning that you were a, uh, that you work within the Department of English, um, but I believe you also work in the Department of Mexican-American and Latino and Latina Studies, right? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm a faculty affiliate of uh, uh, Mexican-American and Latino-Latina Studies. Awesome. So I, I wanted to know a little bit more about the classes that you teach. So which one of these classes, that, I'm sure you teach several, but which which one is um, your favorite and why? Well, I, that's uh, that's a great question, Sam. And I really like teaching. I've been teaching this course uh, called uh, in recent years called Immigration and the American Dream. And it really is taking a kind of critical look through both through history, sociology and literature of the relationship the United States has had to uh, the idea of immigration, as well as the relationship that immigrants have had to the American dream. And so we kind of trace it from the kind of uh, early, early days of the of the Republic, uh, uh, where immigration and uh, the American dream are inex in, in, inextricably intertwined. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the thing is, you know, people often forget that, you know, these two things were absolutely essential to each other. And the way that the American dream ha has been imagined. Uh, not this isn't to say that it 
hasn't been controversial from the get-go. Right. So, like, on one hand, you know, you have somebody like Benjamin Franklin who writes this open letter uh, to uh, uh, to Europeans saying, like, come on over, you know, uh, you know, the, the U.S. needs your labor uh, and, uh, you know, to, to become great. And, uh, you know, you can, you can become anything that you wish to with enough hard work and perseverance. And right. so, you know, very much at the kind of work ethic at the root of the American dream. The other part of it, though, is that the same Benjamin Franklin, you know, complains about all these German immigrants to Pennsylvania who are refusing to learn English, you know, and, uh, you know, learn English customs because they're still, you know, kind of, uh, you know, doing things the way they know how, right? right. And 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 even even folks with uh, Native American ancestry, obviously, mm. you know, they they don't have an immigration story <laughs> in that's in the same way. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's affected them too. Absolutely. Right. Uh, and in profound and and sometimes uh, 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 you know very uh, disturbing ways. Right. But nonetheless, every family has an immigration story, no matter how you know, far back. And that story affects the way one lives, you know, one lives one's life in relation to it mm -hmm. today, to the American dream. So anyway, I've gone on a lot about that course, but it's fun. So <laughs> um, one more thing about it. And it, the, the literature that we read is literature by immigrants. Okay. You know, we're not writing uh, a literature by non-immigrants about immigrants. We're writing, we're reading uh, literature by immigrants about their own experience. So, in other words, they get to narrate their story and not be narrated by other people. Absolutely. No, that that's fantastic. I that is really really great. Immigration in the American Dream. So y'all y'all heard it here. If there are any prospective students that are about to get here to UT Austin or maybe current students. Take Immigration in the American Dream with Dr. Gonzalez because um, it sounds like a lot of fun and I'd like to live through you and, and learn a little bit more about that. That sounds fantastic. Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, now, I know that that was kind of a plug, but, you know, we've gotten to that point in the podcast where I allow my guests to plug anything that they want. Um, so, Dr. Gonzalez, I will not ramble any further and I will give you the floor <laughs> and allow you to plug anything that you would like. Well, uh, you know, I, I realized that perhaps I didn't give a full picture of the kind of range of things that I'm interested in from a, a you know, kind of academic standpoint. So, uh, you know, uh, first off, I, I kind of started off like in uh, post-Reconstruction American literature and kind of taking a look at the ways in which uh, how after the Civil War, uh, literature had a really key role to play in imagining the United States reunited right after the Civil War. I mean, you know, in other words, it's the the, uh, the reunification of the country after the Civil War wasn't simply about politics, right? As important as that was, but it was about kind of creating the uh, emotional. Right. Re recreating the kind of emotional ties that are also central to a sense of nationhood uh, after an incredibly bloody and divisive war. Now, uh, unfortunately, the terms of what that happened on, uh, you know, were incredibly 
problematic to say the least, uh, because what what happened was uh, we got Jim Crow and the idea of white supremacy north and south was what united them. Uh, so and uh, that plays itself out through the literature and we can see it in the historical romances of the period. So that's my first book. My second book, I look to uh, the 1930s and in particular the, uh, the moment of the Texas Centennial in 1936 uh, as a moment in which, uh, on one hand, there is this absolute kind of coalescing of we, what we might really call uh, or find familiar as a Texan identity, right? You know, just imagine all the things that you know, still come to mind when you say Texan. This is the moment <coughs> at the 1936 centennial where it all came together discursively, you know, and it found expression in print and literature, in radio broadcasts, uh, and, you know, in Hollywood, right? And later, in, it would later kind of uh, figure in TV. Uh, so, uh, and you know, and it was about, once again, kind of like this, the establishment of a white supremacy <laughs> that uh, subordinated African-Americans and Mexican-Americans. Uh, and particularly uh, uh, because Texas had seen a great influx of Mexican refugees from the revolution just the day, prior decade. Uh, so this was a moment of the coalescing of a certain kind of Texan identity against which Mexican-American uh, intellectuals and writers were having none of it. They're, they're kind of like saying like, no, we're not this kind of racist caricature that we're, uh, you know, the centennial is, is uh, propagating. Um, we have a history in Texas, a deep history in Texas, and we help make Texas, you know, just as much as Anglos did. So here we get what I argue is the kind of uh, uh, the, 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 the genesis of something called the Mexican-American, because prior to that moment, that those two terms together would have been an oxymoron. Uh, you get the League of United Latin American Citizens you know, forms in 1929, uh, and shortly thereafter, you see this proliferation of uh, literature and novels, most mostly in English. Interestingly, because prior to that, <coughs> uh, most of the literature, Mexican American literature, is in Spanish. But you see this kind of turn towards uh, an engagement. Uh, uh, a public engagement or a, an engagement in the public sense of uh, being part of a being U.S. citizens and insisting upon civil rights as U.S. citizens, uh, while at the same time in private life, you know, in your home life, domestic life, being Mexican, right? Speaking Spanish at home, keeping Mexican customs, et cetera, et cetera. So really, uh, the kind of seeds of what we would call the Mexican-American are, are from that moment. That's my second book. Um, finally, what I'm working on now, uh, more recently, is more of a kind of environmental 
oriented history uh, or examination of the South Texas borderlands. And really, it's a kind of transnational space defined by the Tamalipan thorn scrub uh, ecosystem that spans both South Texas and Northern Mexico. And it's going to be a kind of cultural and natural history of that from the way uh, native peoples in the area kind of engage the, uh, the natural environment towards, you know, uh, Spanish and Mexican uh, ranchers, you know, and settler colonialism. And then later, of course, Anglo-Texans and the creation of, of the uh, uh, agriculture uh, in the lower Rio Grande Valley. Uh, in the uh, about a century ago so that's my current project uh personal project um if i'll go ahead and talk quickly about a public history project that i'm doing with uh five other uh scholars uh mostly historians uh called refusing to forget and refusing to forget is a public history project dedicated to bringing back to public consciousness the events uh, that occurred during the decade of the 1910s in mostly in the lower Rio Grande Valley, but also elsewhere in Texas of states violence against Mexican-Americans. Uh, you know, little it's a little known fact, historical event that in 1915, Tejano ranchers in the, in the valley uh, staged an armed uprising against the, the local governments, against the United States government at that time. Uh, and people were killed. You know, it was it was a real shooting uh, insurrection. Uh, now, it was also small and got quickly uh, suppressed, uh, but it was done so by the Texas Rangers and local law enforcement in such a way that completely violated uh, uh, the principles of due process uh, because they essentially uh, considered any anybody of Mexican descent, whether U.S. citizen or not, to be a suspect and accomplice uh, to the insurrection and executed, because there's no other term to use, uh, hundreds if not thousands of innocent Mexican descent people. So like why people, you know, why this isn't more widely known is the product of decades long suppression of, uh, you know, this knowledge in, in public memory through the school system or historical markers and that sort of thing. Uh, so part of what we want to do is refusing to forget is to bring these back to public uh, knowledge uh, to, to, to basically demand a reckoning, right? You know, that uh, the fact that it was 100 years ago doesn't mean that the injustice uh, didn't exist or that it can't be addressed. And so uh, we're, we're working towards, uh, you know, not just kind of like, oh, don't you know that there was this interesting fact about this part of the part of Texas, but more like, there needs to be a substantive reckoning with this police violence. And if I use that very specifically, because that's exactly what it's about, 
uh, issues of police violence and, and impunity that we are unfortunately still dealing with today. Awesome. You are a very, very busy person, Dr. Gonzalez, and you've been putting out a lot of a lot of articles, a lot of books. So I'm very, very impressed by that. But thank you so much for you know sharing that with us. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. And thank you all for tuning in. This has been your host with the most Sam Torres, and this has been Texas 512. Um, stay cool, stay hydrated, and welcome horns. Mm-hmm.